Thank you, Mike and Tanya, for that ministry and music. And good evening once again. We are uh, in Nehemiah chapter 9 tonight, so if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Nehemiah 9, and we're actually going to be in a little bit of 10 as well. Uh, Pastor Reed is on vacation, as we mentioned this morning, uh, so I am just uh, dropping right in, as it were, to Nehemiah. And perhaps you're familiar with the beginning of the story of Nehemiah, where uh, he's a cupbearer to the king, and he asks to be able to, to go back and, and rebuild the walls and all the opposition that he faces. Uh, the beginning part of Nehemiah is a little bit more familiar to us, um, maybe not the end as much. I've even heard Pastor Reed speak on a number of occasions on Nehemiah 8, where Ezra comes into play, and he preaches to the, to the people of Israel, and, and he stands up on a platform, and he reads the law, and they explain it to the people. You might be familiar with that as well. Uh, but tonight's passage uh, is in Nehemiah 9, again, maybe a lesser-known portion. And this is a passage that talks about their rededication of their lives after the walls have already been built, their prayer of confession, and uh, what they just declare that they're going to do from this point forward. Now, it was a kind of a random passage, and I want to say from the outset that this wasn't done in any way to make any kind of comparison with our building of a building. So, I'm not saying there's any confession that needs to be made or rededication or anything. It just happens to be where we're at. So, um, I hope we'll learn a lot from this. And I think there's a lot we can learn individually as we think about times where we need to confess, where we need to rededicate our lives to the Lord. So, think about it from that standpoint as we talk about this passage tonight. Uh, this idea of recommitting, rededicating, and confessing. There are times where the Word of God, you know, kind of convicts us in a very specific way. There are times where we might be living on our own in a way that's totally contrary to the Word of God, and we just kind of let it go. We don't even stop to think about what we're doing. We don't even stop to put ourselves in check. And then all of a sudden, one day, we read the Word of God, and it hits us. The Holy Spirit hits us, really. And we realize that we've been off on the wrong path for quite some time. God convicts us, and we repent, and we turn. And that's the power of the Word of God, which Pastor Cruz talked about in a wonderful way this morning, uh, about loving God's Word. And, and often there's times where, you know, if we are not following the way we should be living, Almost always that's accompanied with us abandoning God's word, not reading it as we ought. When we set that down, when we lay it aside, then bad things are sure to happen. But conversely, when we pick it back up again and start to read it anew, that's when we can recommit ourselves. As Hebrews 4.12 tells us, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the Word of God can do that for sure. It can bring us to a place where we confess our sins and then renew our commitment to following the Lord once again. And if you've been in Pastor Reed's Sunday school class on gentle and lowly, then you should know all this stuff should come together that you have nothing to fear when you confess to, to God your Father. That when you come to Him, He's going to receive you. He's going to take that heart of repentance and, and take upon himself that gentle and lowly spirit and receive us into his, his arms. So this doesn't have to be a scary topic for us to, to jump into tonight when we talk about confession and rededication. But again, we're in Nehemiah 9 and 10, and that seems like a long portion because it is, and uh, I want to read a lot of that to you tonight. 
But as I do so, I have the screen down uh, tonight so that I can show some of that text up on the screen, especially as we read some of the larger portions so we don't get lost in it. But we are jumping in the middle of the story, so let's just summarize a bit in case you're not familiar with Nehemiah or in case it's been quite some time since you've read it. In this Old Testament book, Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, learns that Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and burned. And the king uh, learns of his distress, and he allows him to return to his homeland with many others and supplies as well to rebuild the walls. And while Nehemiah and his fellow Jews work on the project, they experience many types of oppression, both from within and without. There are people charging interest on their own people, uh, making them poorer and poorer, but there are also people who threaten the work from the outside. They say they're going to attack them, and so they have to stop and defend themselves. There's all kinds of opposition that they face. But in the end, the work is completed. The people return to Jerusalem. Ezra teaches them the law of Moses, as I mentioned. That's in chapter 8. And it's at this point they come to realize this long history of their ancestors turning away from God and God bringing upon them just punishment. They realize that they are in distress, and then they confess to God that they have deserved it, and then they seek his help. They vow to follow the law of God, and they recommit themselves to worshiping Yahweh according to Moses' commands. And so that last part that I've just described to you, that's where we are tonight, Nehemiah 9 and 10. And we have a lot of text, as I said. I want to read a lot of it. Um, So be prepared for that. Don't fall asleep. Uh, But just remember, just remember as I do this, that in Nehemiah 8, Ezra read the law from morning until midday, okay? And I'm not asking us to do that, so we can handle it. I think we're going to be all right. We're going to read through two chapters, or at least most of it. Uh, And remember, the text itself is the heart of the message. So as we read these, try to keep uh, that in mind. Don't let your mind wander. Let's focus on what it says. We begin in chapter 9. Verses 1 through 5 is what I'll read from, for now. And uh, we have this description of the Jews and the fact that they came before the Lord in confession. So uh, then in verses 6 through 37, the prayer of confession that they prayed is written out for us. But let's just do 1 through 5. It says, Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord and for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Cherani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites... Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabina, Pethaniah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, as we read this, it's helpful to remember that this is a response to Nehemiah chapter 8. As I just said, Ezra had just read the law of God. They hadn't read it in a long time. Remember, a lot of people didn't have copies of it. I mean, they didn't have photocopiers. They didn't have printed books. This was rare. They were in exile, so they didn't have this. So many of them are hearing it for the first time and realizing everything that they had neglected for many, 
many years. The people actually begin to weep when they hear of all that they had not done. And Nehemiah had stepped in uh, that day and and comforted them by uh, saying that today wasn't the day to weep. And when he said that, he wasn't saying that, you know, weeping for sin was inappropriate, that they had no reason to be sad or that everything was okay and that they were acting foolishly somehow. No, rather, Nehemiah was saying, today let us simply rejoice, for there's going to be a time for sorrow later. But for now, let's rejoice and be glad, because God has given you success. And the Jews did celebrate. They did give thanks, because after all, they were celebrating the fact that they had completed this wall. God had answered Nehemiah's prayers to allow them to come back, to have the king's support, to have all of the materials they needed, to have all the people they needed, to defend them against all these uh, foes and adversaries they had on the outside and from within, overcoming all of those obstacles, they saw God was at work. And the fact that they were able to complete it shows that he was in this project. And so he said, don't weep yet. Today, let's rejoice. We're finished. We've gotten this done. Let's celebrate. And he's, he's saying there will be a time for sorrow later, but that will come later in our text tonight. They gave thanks, and uh, after all, God blessed them, and he had uh, still seen them through this. Nevertheless, they had still violated God's laws. They had not followed the law of Moses for a very long time, and that still needed to be made right. So after all the celebration had died down, Nehemiah 9.1 says that on the 24th day of the month, the people turned to the Lord in confession. And so verses 1 through 5 says... There were, uh, uh, there were a few details there that let us know that they took this uh, seriously. Verse 1 tells us that they assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. And in the Old and New Testaments, both actions were ways that people used to humble themselves, either when the people had a request before the Lord or were confessing their sins. So if we think back to 1 Samuel 7, and pastor was just in the book of 1 Samuel, When Israel went up to attack the Philistines, the prophet Samuel said that if they wanted to be successful, they needed to put away their Baals and their idols. And the Israelites did, and before they went into battle, they fasted and said, we have sinned against the Lord. That's in verse 6. Or in 2 Samuel 12, when the prophet Nathan confronted David for sleeping with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah, we haven't gotten to that section yet, in our series uh, in the morning. But David repents there. He fasted and he wept because of the consequences that David sees that his sin has wrought. Or even if we think of Esther chapter 4, when the queen was going before the king to make a request, what did she tell her followers to do? Fast for me before I go in, that my request might be granted. So the Jews used this method of fasting And when they do so, we know that things were serious. They were crying out to the Lord. And that's not to say that there's anything magical about fasting, that somehow if you fast, God's more likely to hear your prayers than if you don't. But fasting was meant to be more about the inner heart rather than trying to change God's mind. It was a way of making yourself feel that kind of humility that you know you should be having. And sometimes we might confess something, we might know that we should feel humble about something, but our minds wander. We're, we, we have a hard time really understanding the depth 
of our sin. And they did that as a way of aiding uh, what it was that they were trying to, to recognize in their hearts. The same is true of wearing sackcloth. In the scriptures, this was also something that was done to show mourning and repentance. Uh, this sacking material was usually made of goat or camel hair and was usually black in color. That is, if it was made of goat's hair. In Genesis 37, when Jacob was told that his son Joseph was dead, it says he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and mourned for his son for many days. Or even in 1 Kings 21, 27, there's an example where King Ahab put on sackcloth. Now, we don't normally think of Ahab. If you know anything about Ahab, we don't normally think of him as somebody who repented, for he was an evil king. But there was at least one instance where God came to him and told him that because of his sins, both he and Jezebel would perish. And for a time after that, it says that Ahab actually repented. He fasted. He put on sackcloth. And all this shows that when we look at Nehemiah right here, the Jews in chapter 9 were doing everything they could to humble themselves both outwardly and inwardly. And just as an aside, as I was reading this, it, it occurred to me that I'm not really sure why we as Christians in the 21st century have somehow come to assume that fasting is not relevant for today. Um, and I'm saying this with myself included because I can only think of maybe one time in my life where I actually tried to, to fast for the sake of prayer. But the rest of my life, that's not something I've ever really tried to do. But it's not something we often hear about. Um, and I don't know what the concern is there, but it's something that we see here in the Bible that's used by many godly men and women. It's not something that's ever commanded for us to do. I'm not saying that. Um, but when you see a pattern that's repeated by people that you look up to in the Bible, and uh, it's something that's done over and over again by these, these individuals. I think it's something we, we should take notice to. I wonder if sometimes the reason that I don't fast is just because I like to eat. Any, anybody else in that same boat? Um, it's just easier to say, well, I'll pray about it. You know, well, they fasted, but I, I, I don't really need to do that. My pray, you know, I could say all these kind of things I just said to you. It's not that God's going to hear me any less if I just pray and I don't fast, you know. So is it really necessary? wonder if it has more to do with just what my preferences are more than anything. Um, the idea of both fasting and wearing sackcloth were both intentionally uh, done to help, again, guide the heart into what it was that they were, were, were praying. It was an aid to prayer, as it were. And they were both intentionally uncomfortable. And so when you felt hungry or uncomfortable, which you would throughout the day, the idea was that it would drive you to pray. I'm not saying that you have to fast every time you confess or pray, but what I'm suggesting is that it can be used as a way of causing us to cry out to God. That uncomfortability, and this was years ago, the one time I actually did attempt to do that, I remember being reminded of my hunger many times throughout the day. And I thought, this is probably the point. Every time I'm tempted to eat something, um, that's a reminder, okay, pray now. You're, you're relying upon the Lord now. You're not relying upon food. And I think that uncomfortability was intentional. I think that's how God designed it to be. So there's something to be said for that. All that to say, don't discount the power of fasting, perhaps, and, and maybe it might be an aid to you someday. But in summary, the Jews in Nehemiah 9 devoted this day to confession. That's the big point. Just as one day had been devoted to thanksgiving 
in the previous chapter, and we love Thanksgiving. We like that part. But the confession part, eh, maybe not so much. Um, but they devoted a day to each. Um, this was one for confession. It says in verse 3 that for a quarter of the day, that would have been about three hours, they stood and listened to the law as they had done before. And then for another three hours, it says they confessed their sins and worshiped God. So from perhaps, let's just put some times to this, between 8 and 11 in the morning, they're studying the scriptures, and then from 11 to 2, they confessed and worshiped. Now today, we use the word worship for all sorts of things. Um, it can mean gathering together, worshiping in song and prayer and listening to preaching, personal devotions, or just in everyday obedience. What were they doing when it says they worshiped God during that time? Well, it could have included singing. We don't know. Uh, but most likely it was a time where they confessed the Lord's goodness, their compassion, or his compassion rather, his love and his faithfulness, and they attributed worth to God. And we know this because of the content of the prayer that comes next. In it, the Jews both confess their unfaithfulness before God and his consistent faithfulness and goodness to them, despite what they've done. So that's what it seems the author meant when he says they confessed and worshiped during those three or four hours. I think that's a helpful balance for us to keep in mind too when we come before God in confession. If we ever think, we, uh, if we ever think to confess at all in our prayers, we often just say, God, please forgive me for this or for that. It's easy for us to go straight to the, the requests, isn't it? Or if we get further than the requests, it's a little, uh, it's still comfortable for us to say, God, I praise you for doing this in my life or for, for your attributes here. But when we get to confession, that gets a little more uncomfortable. We, we probably dedicate a little bit less of our prayer time to confession. And uh, it's something that maybe we, we just tend to abandon or, or forget or neglect. It's good that when we do confess, um, that we not just say the words, but that our heart is in it. And I know that there's been times when I've done wrong, and I, I know I should confess it, but my heart isn't broken enough like I know it should be. And um, maybe not just broken for brokenness sake, but rather brokenness so that I would truly have a desire to turn from my ways and be changed. In those cases, for whatever reason, I know that there have been times when I haven't fully grasped just how serious my sin is or how much it hurts God. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way, that you're just saying the words but not really feeling or internalizing the remorse that you know you should. Here's a suggestion from Scripture. Combine your confession with worship, as the Jews did here. And by that I mean sometimes it's helpful when we confess our own unfaithfulness to confess God's faithfulness at the same time. And as we'll soon see, the Jews did that very thing. They showed how they had been unrighteous over and over again. And yet, in that same prayer confessed everything that God had done for them. And it's interesting, and we'll see it as we put it up in the screen in just a second, how those two things compare and how you're just reminded, yes, God, you've been so good to me in comparison. Look at, look at how much of a mess I've been, how much I've failed to honor you as I ought. It helps us to realize how perfect God is. So if ever you are in your own prayer time and you, you say to yourself, I'd like to confess, but I just don't know how to go about it, Combine that with thanksgiving. Say, you know, God, I know there have been times that I, I haven't done X as I, as I should have. 
But you, on the other hand, I can think of all these instances where you've been good to me. You've been good to me this week in these ways. You've been good to me last week in these ways, in this year. Put those two things together, and I think that'll help. But if we come back to our text, we see that the people don't just confess on their own. Rather, we see the Levites help them, and they lead the people in this act of confession. Just like the Levites helped Ezra in the teaching of the law in Nehemiah 8. Um, We see here in verse 7, Ezra read the law and then the Levites explained it. And here we see the Levites helping again. It says also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, and all these other names that I'm not going to suffer through, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay? So this is what they did in the text with, um, with Ezra in the previous chapter. And so too here in our chapter, um, in chapter 9, the Levites help assist the people in confession. That is, the people made the Levites' prayers their own. I don't know if you happen to own any books of prayers. Maybe you've heard me mention on a number of times Uh, how helpful I find the Valley of Vision is uh, as a particular book of prayers. Pastor Reed has mentioned that way more even than than I have, and he was the one who showed it to me, I believe. And so many people have different books of prayers that help. And it's not to say that, you know, you get lazy and you don't ever pray on your own to God, but sometimes they can be very helpful in guiding you. And in this case, the Levites really help the people in guiding them in confession, of reminding them things to confess. And so, the Levites say in chapter 9, verse 5, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And from this point on, they lead the people in a prayer. God in his sovereignty allowed this prayer to be copied down for us in verses 5b uh, to uh, verse 38 of chapter 9. And you will see the things that the people confess. The central theme of this prayer is, You are worthy of all praise, because you have been faithful while we have been unfaithful. Now again, this is the large part, so buckle up. Here here we go. We're going to read a good portion of text here from verse 5 to 38. But as we do so, to kind of help you stay on track, I want you to list in your head how many good things that God did for them. Okay? And you'll see it on the screen. I'll try and break it up into sections where they talk about God's faithfulness, and then they move on to their unfaithfulness, and they bounce back and forth. So count in your head, and let's see how many things God did for them that they were praising him for, okay? This is the intro, though, before we get to that. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bane, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaniah said, Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So here's the section on God's faithfulness that starts. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart to be faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. 
and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. It continues. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through their midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and you gave them the right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Okay, so pause. Try and remember how many things that they have to give thanks for. Now this is the people's rebellion. We'll come back to the praise. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey their commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of all the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Now we're back to numbering this, God's faithfulness. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into your hand with the kings and all the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Okay, pause. Now we're back to the people's rebellion. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them to suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after that, after that rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your word. 
and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And here's the summary. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets and fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this very day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in our own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In this land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And so here's their commitment at the end. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So that's a lot, but I wonder how many different things did you count that they gave praise to God for? I'll tell you there's different ways you can go about it, depends on how you break it up. I counted 30. I counted 30 different things that the people praise God for in the midst of their disobedience. And I believe there were about 15 different things, maybe more than that, that they confessed to their God that they had done wrong. That's their confession, led by the Levites, and it's a great model for us as well. And if you lost uh, track at any point during that passage, just remember this key verse. It was verse 33. This is the main idea of it all. He says, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. So if you want a key verse in all this, that's, that's your key verse. The Levites listed out these many ways over history where God has again and again proven himself to be faithful. And at the same time, the Levites point out how again and again they were unfaithful. You read, our forefathers did this, and it's not that they're putting the blame on somebody else. Rather, they are grouping themselves with them and acknowledging their own guilt. They all had been faithless, and you can sense that as we read it. And you know, this sort of list of the acts of God is a common thing in the Old Testament. David in the book of Psalms also says something like this, that you are the God of Israel who parted the waters and led the people on dry ground. The scriptures are filled with examples where individuals look back and enumerate on what God has done in the past. And I think that's valuable for us to consider as well. We so often share in the Israelites' flaw in that we often forget the good things that God has done for us. And so it's helpful 
from time to time for us to go back and list all of the ways that God has been good to us, both in our common spiritual history, like the Exodus and God's promises of Scripture, but also in ways that He's helped us uh, individually as well, or even as a church. I really appreciated what Brother Jack Herb did when we had our Thanksgiving service, and he came up and he gave a lot of the ways that we had to give thanks for everything that's been going on behind the scenes in this building project, what God has been doing in it. And that's helpful because for even of us who are on the building committee, it's possible for us to forget, to forget all the ways that God has laid the groundwork for us to be able to, to get where we are today. That's good for us to rehearse. It's good for us to rehearse those kinds of things in our own lives as well. One of the things that stuck out to me in this prayer was the aspect of God's patience. You catch that because he's talking about a long period of time, right? Where they were faithless over and over again. And it's not just like, uh, you know, this past week I did this and this and this. It's like over centuries we're talking that, that is summarized in this prayer. This prayer gives examples of how God could have destroyed them or judged them but waited a very long time before even doing so. And even then, he didn't fully abandon them like they deserved. He allowed them to sin over and over again throughout the, throughout the years before he finally kicked them out of the land. But even then, he hadn't abandoned them fully. Boy, can I relate to that. I, you know, I can think back on my own life. God, if you were being totally just and fair in my life, I wouldn't deserve any of the things that you've blessed me with today. It's just the way it is. And I think all of us could probably say the same thing. God, if you were being fair, sometimes we think, God, why this doesn't seem fair that it's happening to me. No, it's not fair that we have anything at all. <laughs> we, we really don't deserve to be where we're at today. God has been giving us what we don't deserve, meaning his mercy, meaning his grace. And we see that at work here in this prayer. That leads me to this next application that's so striking to me, how much God allowed the Israelites to enjoy. Not just how much he forgave them of or allowed to take place, but allowed them to enjoy in the midst of everything that they were doing wrong. How he blessed them with good land, it said, even peace at times, even though they were acting rebelliously. So this passage teaches us that just because things are going well for us, that doesn't mean that everything is okay with us and God, not necessarily all the time. So it could be, it could be that things are going well, but we shouldn't take um, relative ease in life as a sign that, you know, I don't really need to confess I'm okay. It reminds us that even if we never confessed or turned from a sin, and now several weeks have passed and life is going fine, then God has somehow forgotten about it, or we really don't need to respond or turn from anything anymore. No, may it never be, in fact. Uh, for in the Israelites' case, their luxuries weren't signs of God's favor, but rather his patience, his patience. Things may be going well for us now, but that shouldn't make us think that we therefore no longer need to repent. For if we still have something unresolved and things appear to be ju going just fine, then remember that's God's patience with you. That's God's patience with us. Like the jo Jews, he so often does not immediately punish us uh, when we do wrong. Many times he's patient with us and gives us additional opportunities to turn to him. 
So make sure you don't miss that. So in summary, the people have been faithless up to this point. What now is to be done? Well, the people respond not just by confessing with their lips and then going home and not changing their ways, but they make a vow of dedication to change what they have done wrong. And in verse 38, it says this, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document in the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And this vow is recorded in greater detail in chapter 10. Now, because we're short on time, I'm going to summarize uh, this agreement in what it says. Nehemiah 10, uh, 1 through 27, gives the names of the people who made this commitment. And then in verses 28 through 29, it says this. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. So they vowed essentially to, from that point on, to obey the law of Moses as God had originally instructed their forefathers to do. Then it breaks it down specifically what that vow is, and I'll just summarize it for you because it is a large passage. They say that we're not going to marry peoples from other nations where they would be led astray to worship other gods. That's in chapter 10, verse 30. They agree to remember the Sabbath and not buy or sell anything on that day and to remember the sabbatical year by leaving their harvest for the poor to eat and uh, by releasing individuals from debt on that year as well. That's chapter 10, verse 31. They also agree to keep the duties of giving to the house of God by giving offerings and keeping festivals and feasts. That's in verse 32 and 33. And they agree to continue to bring wood to the altar and to bring first fruits of everything as instructed in the laws of Moses. That's verses 34 through 39, or the first half of 39. And then finally they say not to neglect the house of the Lord, and that's at the end of 39. So that's a summary of chapter 10. The people correctly identify what they've done wrong, and they make a commitment to fix it. That's in keeping with the whole law. Of course, there's a lot for them to do, but this was what was necessary if they were to be in a right relationship with God again. We too, whenever we confess, also should make that commitment to change our ways as well. That we understand confession not to be something that we just do verbally, but a decision to turn 180 degrees in the other way. And it's not saying that we'll always be perfect in that turning. We know our own patterns. We know how we fall. We know our limitations. But again, that shouldn't um, lessen our resolve or our desire, that is, to turn and to make a change in our life. And we ask God to help us as we do so. And we learn that from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and it's a helpful balance to this passage. Lest you feel the weight of it, you're like, man, that's the whole law of God. I'm bound to mess that up. How am I even, how can I even make that kind of commitment to the Lord, okay? And God knows our weakness, okay? But nevertheless, we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond our ability, but with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, so that you may be able to endure it. The thing that I want you to see in that verse is God's aid in it all. 
the fact that he's saying, you're not alone in this. I will provide you with a way of escape so that you don't have to feel the full weight of it, so that you're not alone in this battle. So God's not just giving us the weight of this law without anything else in support. We have that gentle and lowly Savior, and we have this promise here that God is going to be with you to help provide that way of escape. God is definitely in our midst in it. I also like what Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The encouraging thing is that we don't have to feel like we bear the whole weight of the entire law of God on our shoulders. God's promised that he will help us by his Holy Spirit. Here it says that we are to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. You see that there. And that means we need to actively work in growing in godliness. But we don't have to despair thinking that it's too impossible of a task. Because it says here in verse 13, it is God who works in us, in our hearts, to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, it's God working in us to give us that will and that desire to want to turn. God's in work in us in two ways. Number one, to will it, to desire it, and then actually to go forward with it and to do it, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, we're not alone. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And when we fail and mess up, it's appropriate for us to say, God, I want to commit myself again to following you anew. We don't have to feel like that's too impossible for us to strive for because he's working in us to help us grow, even in the midst of our failings. We can see God's mercy on display in all that we read tonight, knowing just how patient of a God he is. But we don't ever want to misunderstand that patience as being an excuse to sin. Far from it. We commit and we desire to follow him anew. What do we learn from this passage as we sum things up? Well, we first learn first and foremost about the patience and goodness of God. We've said that. We often think of this book as primarily being about Nehemiah and how he helped the people complete the walls of Jerusalem. Yet, we should also remember that when the walls were completed, the people weren't right with God. The story doesn't end with the completion of the walls. You'd think if that was the whole point of this book, it ends with that chapter. They're done, end of story. But it doesn't. There's this whole other section, which is why I think it's helpful for us to look at this tonight, helping us to see that it's more than just the project, right? And even though this wasn't why I, I chose this text, this church is more than this building. God is going to be praised on October 24th when we gather together and thank him for everything that he's done as we rehearse the many ways that he's been at work but our work is not done. Just like Nehemiah is not done in the middle of the book, there is still more for us to do. This is not the end. This is a means to an end, a greater end, of spreading the gospel of making disciples. And so we keep that in mind, that though we celebrate the victory, we press on and we see what work we have to do in the future. So may God's act of goodness to us in the future not cause us to be complacent, and to think everything's okay, but rather cause us to realize just how unworthy we are in contrast, and then motivate us to please him and turn from our own shortcomings even more. Remember that because Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross, 
Our confession is never intended to crush us or cause us to despair, but rather we confess knowing that our God is a loving and forgiving Father. We confess because we know that we can come humbly before Him and He will gently lift us up and cause us to stand once again. We praise God for His character. May we always seek to confess, to grow, and glorify Him each day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the lessons we learn here in Nehemiah 9 and 10. Thank you for this prayer that's recorded for us. For in it we see your countless acts of faithfulness time and time again. And Lord, when we are in need of confession, help us to have the courage to do so, knowing that we come before a loving and gentle and gracious Father who desires us to turn and be close to him. So thank you, Lord, for your character. Thank you for your love, for your mercy. Thank you for your justice as well that shows us the sinfulness of our ways. Thank you for this prayer, Lord, that shows us your patience over time. Thank you for the way in which it shows us how good you have been to us, not only individually, but also through the ages. May we ever remember these things and praise your name. And may you help us to press forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.